The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit wondering if the dark ages were caused by the Y1K problem and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 455 with guest Paul Randall, recorded live Tuesday, June 2nd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's busier than a one-toothed man at a corn on the cob eating contest, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, and Richard out there in Vancouver. Hey, man, what's hey. up? Not much. I got your sunglasses. Oh, yeah. Left me your house. Your house yeah. is amazing, dude. Thanks, man. The uh, I can't wait to see the Batmobile launcher. Oh, the Batmobile launcher. But it's just a lift, you know. Yeah, well. Just a lift. It's not everybody has a lift in their garage for their second car. Well, you know, got to put it somewhere. You're excessive. All right, man. Let's get into Better Know Framework. I'm okay with that title. <laughs> What do you got for me? All right. Well, so we've been talking about uh, – we've been doing a long series on Better Know Framework on the um, uh, system.windows namespaces. WPF. We, yeah, WPF and Silverlight. And we're going to get into system.windows.shapes this time. Oh. Very simple. This is where the library of shapes is that can be used in uh, XAML or code. You got the ellipse. You got the line. You got the path. You got the polygon. You got the polyline. got the rectangle. got the shape. Which nice. is the base class. Uh, any questions? Didn't think so. <laughs> straight I'm thinking ahead. like circle? Yeah, pretty straight ahead. So uh, that's where the shapes are. All right. I, it can't, you know, they can't all be glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just need a rectangle. Man, Dev Teach was cool, wasn't it? It was a good little show, wasn't it? It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, nice uh, folks there. Yeah, we got to, we did a a DNR TV on that show. By the way, some really good DNR TVs coming up. We're starting a uh, an MVP series, which we've done a lot of DNR TVs with MVPs, but specifically the MVPs are getting involved and they'll be labeled and recognized as such. So we're doing some very cool things. Uh, we got about five or six or seven shows in the can now, and we'll be releasing them. A little bit sooner than once a week for a while. So catch up with them, dnrtv.com. Hey, you got an email for us? I do indeed. And it's funny that you mentioned DNRTV because this email mentions Run As Radio. Oh, cool. Let me read it to you. Hi, guys. I would first like to thank you for a great show. I've been listening to you for over a year now, and my career has not been the same since then. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah. What? He's just stopped working because he's listening to the show all the time? He's uh, on I think that's not what he meant. Okay. I'm currently building my own house, and your voices have been my company while I bang away with a hammer. But in contrary to Richard, I still have some time left on my project. After listening to show 364 with Stacey Harris about home automation, my first thought was, I've got to do that. 
I work in a consulting company as a web developer. In our role, we have to know and handle the whole range of technologies, ASP.NET, networking, WCF, web services, databases, you name it. One subject that I was wishing for is a performance tuning show, like how to find bottlenecks and things we don't work with every day, like databases, IO, network chatter, and so on. And I just listened to Run As Radio with the guest Clint Huffman and got thrilled about all the things you can discover with just a few tools. Are there more shows like that coming for developers to make our lives easier. Hmm. Once again, thanks for a great show from Cal Hoppe from uh, Stockholm, Sweden. Awesome. I guess we should do more shows in this area. Of course, this is an area that I talk about in conferences all the time. Yeah, yeah. What I should do is do some DNR TVs with you. Yeah, you should. Yeah, absolutely. Walk people through some of this stuff and talk about performance tuning. Certainly we do. We didn't really focus on performance tuning and run as radio. That's much more IT topics, but we did talk about instrumenting web servers, and other kinds of servers. Clint Huffman is uh, one of the guys from uh, the uh, premier field engineering team at Microsoft, and that's what those guys do is they work in offices at companies helping them make their apps run better. Speaking of performance, I was just doing a test here with Visual Studio, um, trying to eke out as much performance as I can in a, in a, uh, a server, uh, the persistent connection server that I'm working on. Right. Highly scalable. So obviously performance is paramount to uh you know coding right yep so we have basically i wanted to see where uh the performance gains can be and i'm using a binary formatter to convert messages um classes into byte arrays and stream them you know down through sockets and things like that so i made up a little test thing to see well you know what is serialization, but just making a stream of bytes that represents an object. Right. And if you can do that in a more specific way, maybe perhaps you could squeeze out some performance and maybe some bloat. So what I did was I created a class that had like five integers, five strings, and a bunch of, and a a byte array. And then I made uh, a little routine to populate um, 10,000 of those classes, you know, objects from that class and put them in a, um, you know, with random data. I basically random strings, random bytes. The strings are all in the printable character range, random integers and in an array of bytes that contains, I don't know, up to, I don't know, 20, you know, I don't know, five, five, five K, 25 K, something like that. Just random sizes. So I did a test using the binary formatter and then I also did a test, and I, I like serialized all ten thousand of these things, right? And with the start time and end time, and then I did a test manually using the bit converter to convert out and uh, to bytes and write all this stuff. In both ways, I wrote it into a memory stream and then got the array from the memory stream. Turns out, doing it manually takes about half the time and cuts out about forty percent of the size. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, you know, if you've got a, a a class that you want to serialize and, you know, your performance is is paramount, just take a look at it. It's it's pretty it's pretty it's not all that it's not all that difficult to do. It certainly makes it a little more inflexible and you can't, you know, if you want to change your class around, now you have to change your serializer because it's right. specific to that class. But if performance is your thing, hmm. It's interesting. Possibilities. Yep. Hey, you know, our friends at Infusion are still hiring. They're looking for people, and um, we're getting more and more interested parties now. So if you're currently looking for another job and you got some SharePoint chops or some uh, ASP.NET chops or uh, just looking for another another gig, they have offices in London and in Dubai and in New York and in Toronto. So and they're looking for talented people and that's why they came to me they said hey your listeners are pretty smart uh send me an email carl at franklins.net awesome our guest today is paul randall paul of course has been on the show before he is the uh former microsoft employee uh sql server guru who wrote check db uh for microsoft sql server and uh currently is an mvp and a regional director and uh, works with works and lives with Kimberly Tripp. And is married. And is married. He has a license to do that. Yes. Uh, with That's my only claim to fame. With SQL Skills. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, I am uh, 
Addicted at the moment. Addicted to being online, unfortunately. Kimberly's not here, and I am a Twitter addict. Yeah, Twitter uh, is a time vampire, isn't it? <laughs> My life went down the toilet three weeks ago when I joined Twitter. But that's another story. Actually, it's a pretty good community out there, so I've been having a lot of fun helping people out and finding out some interesting stories of people doing things wrong and stuff, so... So that's me. Awesome. With that and Lego and my other sorted hobbies. Legos. So you doing Mindstorm? No, actually, I have a Mindstorm set that I've never actually got around to using it. The story of my life. I see a new toy. Oh, well, let's have that, and then I never do anything with it. No Lego models. Big Lego models. I like. I like making uh, Lego sets from. Yeah, I saw on, on a Twit pic your model of the <laughs> Millennium Falcon, and it's what four feet across. Oh it's like two, two and a half feet long. It's it's it used to be the biggest set they did. Um, it was about five and a half thousand pieces, and then they came out with the Taj Mahal, which is three foot square and a foot and a half high. So, of course, oh I had to get that. Oh my god! Yeah, I was making it. Yeah, that is a lot of Lego. Yeah, that's a lot of Lego. Yeah, and I'm currently making the Death Star that I got for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> From the what original Star Wars, I might add, not the second Death Star Lego model. I don't like that one. So, there you go. That's my life when Kimberly's not here. Ba-boom. I make Lego and talk to you guys. It's very sad. That's funny. <laughs> hey, uh, before we get into a real topic, there's some seriously cool stuff coming out from Microsoft lately. Uh, Bing, Bing.com. Seen I heard it? today that it's, um, oh, what, did it say? what did it say? It's um, something that's not Google, because it's not Google or something. B-I-N-G. Bing is not Google. Bing is oh, not Google. Bing is not Google. Yeah, recursive Bing is a recursive name. It's kind of nice. Yeah, I like it. Kind of like lame. Lame ain't an MP3 codec. There you go. Uh, same ring to it, but you know what I like about Bing, of course, is the suggestions on the side. Depending on what you're searching for, you know, if you search for, the, you put in a, lo- a movie title, the first thing that comes up is a listing of local times in theaters. If you put in an actor or something like that, you'll see like a, or or an author, you'll see like a a bibliography, a link to the bibliography or an artist, you know, discography. And those links sort of appear on the side and they're usually the stuff that you're looking for. You put in the name of a product, you know, like an electronics product or something with a manual, you'll get a link to the user manual on the side. Little things like that, just really, really cool. It's interesting stuff. It is and I, interesting. And I, I think you did this over Twitter, but I saw down on your blog that you actually got uh, your SLA feedback around m- maximum allowable downtimes and stuff like that. I'm sorry, this is very IT-ish, but it's interesting to to see what people are thinking in terms of what is your real downtime allowed. Right. Or actually, actually, it was kind of depressing the number of people that didn't respond, given how many people usually respond to my surveys. Right. So like 30 people responded, and that's probably because most people either don't have SLAs defined or aren't measuring them or have got no idea what an SLA actually is. Yeah, or don't know what the number is. I mean, they may well have an SLA, but they just don't know. And I think that's, I think that's very true of developers that, that, you know, how many times is the only time we, it comes up that we have an SLA and that these are the numbers is when you didn't make them, you know, in the meeting where they said, boy, that was a really sucky weekend. It's like when uh, it's like, do you have a disaster recovery or HA plan? No, of course not. But as soon as your your company actually has a disaster, it's the first thing on the CEO's mind. Yeah. Can you guys? Uh, you know, this is .NET Rocks, not Run As Radio. Yeah, so. we're not on Run As Radio. So what the hell is SLA? Isn't that what is that? <laughs> it's a TLA. Nice three letter acronym. Yeah, I get that. It one. Is. That's service the only is a, it's a service level agreement. So in the IT world, you you've probably heard it. Um, the two main ones are RTO recovery time objective and RPO recovery point objective. In other words, how much downtime are you allowed and how much data loss can you have? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, as much as these are supposed to be IT-related topics, I think, especially in today's market, a developer who has a sense of the operations of his organization, has a sense of where his company makes money and what the consequences of downtime are, is the guy who's going to keep his job. Actually, you know what? There's, there's a lot of things that, that developers can do to screw up the, um, the ability of a company to meet the SLA. So, for instance... Imagine a, a developer writes a, a query that goes and does a single, a single batch update of a 10 billion row table. Right. Okay? So if Ouch. it gets to, if, yeah, if it gets to 10 billion minus one rows, it's updated. The server crashes. When the server comes back up, crash recovery is going to run and it has to roll back the entire thing before the database comes back. Oh, online. ow. Ow. You're not getting five nines out of that one. 
Yeah. No. You just flushed <laughs> your nines down the toilet. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Maybe a nine and an eight. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you are are doing this sort of work, what were you doing touching the production server in the first place? I, I'm always big on uh, in presentations saying to a developer, you know what? You don't want access to the production servers because oh, that way it can know. never be your fault. Yeah, I don't, I don't even mean they're actually on the production server. They just write an application that when they test it, they don't test with the right amount of scale. Right. So when, when the, the data volume goes from you know, 100 rows, which is the test case, to 10 billion rows, which is reality, it doesn't scale very well. It doesn't perform, and it affects, affects um, availability. And people don't plan that kind, of, that kind of testing. So you never find that out until things actually hit the fan. Yeah, it is, it is a sad truth. The, and I wonder how often you run into this, Paul, that, that you have organizations that don't actually have IT staff at all, or, or if they do, they're certainly not concerned on the database. I'm surprised how many times I've met guys who said, yeah, I'm responsible for the database in my organization. It says, wow, did you apply for that job? He says, no, I was standing closest to the server when the last guy quit. <laughs> yeah. Now you're the DBA. Congratulations. Now I'm the DBA. The reluctant, yeah. involuntary uh, DBA. I kid you not. I, I, saw a, I see it quite a lot, mostly on the forums. There was a forum post a couple of weeks ago where some poor guy had been, had been told, the DBA just left. You're now the DBA. The server's down. Fix it by tomorrow, or you're out of here too. Nice, absolutely nice. Yeah. <laughs> we got it. We got it fixed for him, but um, with with help over the forums. You know, the one of the main um, kind of involuntary DBA things that I see now is SharePoint. Oh yeah. You get a SharePoint installation. Suddenly, you've got an enterprise class SQL server sitting underneath you. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think people think about the fact that SharePoint is totally SQL server dependent, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it does some it does some wacky things. Kimberly's blogged a bunch about SharePoint and some of the, the interesting choices that the SharePoint developers made. The guys who wrote SharePoint. The guys who wrote SharePoint, yeah. Is uh, interesting a word that you would choose to be polite or <laughs> I like being an MVP and a Microsoft regional director, yeah. so yes, I'm saying interesting. So for instance, GUID cluster keys. Okay. So a GUID clustering on a and a non sequential GUID at that? And a non-sequential random good, absolutely. Yeah. Ouch. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So, we're now see the two database geeks know this is painful, but let's let's I know, talk. I, I, I no, should I, explain. I I, okay. I think I get it. Indexes are mathematical, aren't they? I mean, they're they're sequential. They need to be sequential. Well, you define an index key, which means you're defining some ordering to the index. Right. It means every row that gets put in is inserted into the index based on the key value, yeah. the data in that particular record. If your high-order key is a random GUID generated, say, in your, your clients here, then that means every record that gets inserted is essentially a random insert into the middle of an index. Yeah. So a random insert into the middle of an index, eventually the index pages fill up, and they do a thing called a page split, which means that because the page is completely full, another record comes in, it has to be inserted on that page, because mm. that's the, the, where the key says. And if there's no room, page splits in half, another page gets allocated, some rows get moved around, without getting too technical, and you've basically created fragmentation. So you've got a couple of pages that are only half full, and you've got a, a, an index that's no longer contiguous in, in terms of the order of the pages right. on the disk and the order of the pages if you follow them in logical order, key order. It seems like you might as well not have an index if you're going to use random GUIDs. Well, it, it depends what you're doing with the index. If, if, you, if you want the index to be able to, if you want to be able to look up a single record based on that key, the index is fantastic. Because that's the point of an index is being able right. to, to find a particular record really, really fast without a table scan. Okay, well, and you scanning. said one other word here that that affects all of this as well, which is clustered. It's clustered. the clustered index. Yeah. The, the, well, the bad thing about it being part of the clustered index is because the the clustered index keys are included in every non-clustered index record as well. Right. Right. Because. If, if the query processor is using a non-clustered index to be able to more efficiently get some results for a query, then if the result set has to include more columns than there are present in the non-clustered index, the query processor excuse me, has to go back to the, the actual table itself, which is either a clustered index or a heap, um, to get the rest of the records. So there's, there's some kind of linkage between the non-clustered index records and back to the base table. So in the case of a clustered index, that linkage is the cluster keys themselves. If the cluster key is a GUID, or at least contains a GUID, then a GUID is 16 bytes, so that's at least 16 bytes of um, information pushed into every non-clustered index record as well. 
so it, it, it uses a whole bunch of extra space. It actually also has another effect depending on the non-clustered index keys. So imagine your non-clustered index key is a date time, and you could, you're inserting hundreds and hundreds of records per second, even thousands of records per second. The minimum time period that a date time column in 2005 can um, resolve is 3.3 milliseconds. So if you can actually insert hundreds of records every 3.3 milliseconds, then the insertion point in the non-clustered index essentially becomes determined by the cluster key, which if it's a random good, means you're doing random inserts into your non-clustered index too. So you can actually get fragmentation in your clustered and non-clustered indexes. So just to summarize here, when I use a non-sequential good as my clustered index key, I am slowing down the rate of inserts, period, whenever those things split. So the initial inserts are slowed down. Yep. And 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 if and fragmenting every index in the process, so that subsequent queries of anything else are also impacted. Indexes get less efficient. It's really it has significant consequences. But all yep. of this only matters at velocity. Yes, and you know it's it, it depends. A lot of these you know things cause big problems. It it depends. My favorite answer is always it depends. Right? Any SQL Server question apart from should you shrink is it depends. Yeah. Because um, the answer to shrink is no. <laughs> but I should say auto-shrink. Auto-shrink is always no, never turn it off. Okay? But shrink, eh, maybe. But let's not get into that. It's a whole other you know, kind of hot button. Um, it, it depends what you're doing with the indexes. I mean, some things are bad if you're doing certain operations. Some things, if you're doing different operations, it doesn't really matter. You know, if you've... If you've oh, it's so hard to say. This is like an enormous rat hole. The, the whole... Should you you can make the... But you can make the ugliest database in the world. No indexes, no primary keys, nothing. But as long as, long as it's only 100 rows and there's only one user, it'll be fine. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is the unfortunate <laughs> problem with, with so much of uh, developer testing on SQL Server is that the, the test cases don't in any possible way reflect reality. Right. Reality two years from now. You know, like the, the, the testing that I'm sure, say, MySpace or Facebook did didn't reflect the fact that they'd have 10 million users overnight kind of thing. Well, and this is the experience I think a lot of people have with SharePoint is that the initial site works like a hot dam. And then when you really start to get data into it, when the company's really dependent on it, because all the things you want to know are now in SharePoint, now it has performance problems. And it's just a consequence of you have a significant amount of data and these practices, which were relatively painless at low velocity and low volume, are now painful at large velocity, large volume. Yeah, and that, that's a great example to learn from is, is, is SharePoint. And I'm not trying to use it as kind of the redheaded stepchild, but um, it, it is a prime example of uh, an application that was developed seemingly without a huge amount of depth of knowledge about how SQL Server is going to behave under load with the schema that they chose. It's actually right. interesting. One of the Tomorrow I, I'm actually spending a, a day, and Kimberly's spending a day on Friday, teaching the, the SharePoint MCM candidates, because there's a SharePoint MCM running at the moment. We spend a day each teaching the SharePoint MCM folks about SQL Server and some of these problems and the need for database maintenance and kind of enterprise class installations. And just to finish off this, this whole discussion around the clustering indexes and so forth. So, Paul, in your infinite wisdom, what is the preferred clustered index? There's four things. The clustered index key should be unique. It should be as narrow as possible. It should be static, in other words, never changing, and it should right. be ever increasing. Wow. So some, something like a big identity column. Yes. Perfect. A big end identity column is always going to be unique. It's relatively narrow, big end being eight bytes. It's static. Once you set it, you're never going to change it. Yep. And it is sequential. That's the thing. So narrow, unique, static, and ever increasing. Okay. And if you're really, really hooked on GUIDs, there are sequential GUIDs now. Use, yeah, there's a, there's a function called new sequential ID, and there's also a way of getting it to be able to output the... Um, you can only use it as a default for a column, but you can actually... There's a, there's a clause called output, um, where you can actually get the new sequential ID value back and pass it back to the client here to then pass back down to SQL Server. So okay. And the interesting about the staticness of it, I've always, and I've often said this, is like when you have identity columns, don't ever show them to the user. Because the, if you show it to the user, the user will want to change this. And I learned that the hard way when I had a VP of sales actually go to my boss and say, you can't make that customer 413. He's our best customer. He needs to be customer one. 
Don't show them the ID. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a or mistake. Have an, or have a different column. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what I did. Was I created a new column that lied? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm a big big believer in that. Yeah, all kinds of all kinds of funky choices that the developers can make, which have implications. Another one is um, how do you store your your character or your log data? So do you store it uh, in row or do you store it out of row? Okay, so so in row is um, it's actually part of the data record itself. So when the the storage engine reads in the data record, it's got the actual character or, or log value there. Or do you store it out of row, which means that whenever the data record is read, the, the log value isn't there, and another I.O. has to be done to go and get it into memory. And there's pros and cons to each. In the, in the first case, when it's part of the data row, then obviously it's only one I.O. In the second case, it's multiple I.O.s. Um, but in the first case, that means your data rows are larger. Right. You've got less density of information on any particular page. Um, in the second case, of course, your data rows aren't larger, so you get better density. So, you know, data row density means you're... Um, you're having to do less IOs to read more data. You're having to take less memory in the buffer pool, or the buffer cache is sometimes called, to have uh, to, to read more data. And it's only when you actually want the log data do you get the stuff in. But that's a that's a huge choice that you have to make, and it's very hard to make those kind of choices. As a this is a, a choice that a developer can make very easily because if I'm a developer, I know you know most of the time I don't need that data, so I'd rather go with the lighter weight row. And the if, few times that I do that, need yeah. that data, I'll take the extra IO hit. That's the but that's the catch, is the, the developer has to actually know that that's the implications of making that choice. That that matters. Without understanding what SQL Server is actually going to do internally and how it's going to store the stuff on disk, then then you don't know. So, I mean, it, and it's kind of hard. So there's arguments saying, why should developers have to know about this stuff? Okay? Why should... And then we had a whole uh, discussion on the RDA list with, um, with Mr. Huckabee, Timmy Timmy, about um, should a developer really be a database-savvy developer? Do they have to be savvy enough to know these kind of things? Right. Well, and there's definitely a culture out there that says, hey, you just stored data for me. Here's some data. Go store it. Uh, yeah, I'll ask for it back later. Right. That was the devil's advocate argument that, that Huckabee was making, which is you shouldn't have to know. SQL Server should just do it. But then SQL Server just does what you tell it to. So if you tell it to store data and it's a crappy way of storing it for your particular application, then it doesn't know that. It's just going right. to do what you tell it to. So... SQL yeah, Server doesn't, isn't, isn't an intelligent product. There's nobody inside it that's going to go, oh, that's what you really mean. Let's do this instead. Although, you know, it can fool you, too. I mean, I think the query processor of SQL Server is a genius. Certainly better than any other query processor or any other database I've ever used. It's pretty smart. The, the, the people that write the query processor, they, they, most of them, I know most of them, they have, a bunch of them have PhDs in one tiny area of query processing and query optimization. They, it, it is a specialty. You know, when society collapses, what are those people going to do for a living? (laughs) (laughs) We'll code query processors for food. Yes. Don't think so. You're not going to last very long. (laughs) (laughs) This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. Hey, how many times have you drowned into endless CSS classes just to change the color of a single element of your application UI? How many times have you had to ask your designer to create custom skins so that your UI controls match your company's brand identity? It's time to turn to a new page. Telerik has launched the Visual Style Builder for ASP.NET Ajax, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. Colorizing a complete skin at once has never been easier. Just move the color slider and all elements will shift their color spectrum accordingly. That's cool. If the colorization is not enough, you can fine-tune individual elements to perfection. Whether you want to change fonts and sizes, margins and padding, background colors, or just about any style property, it's all easy and intuitive through the Visual Style Builder's graphical interface. It sounds incredible. So let's go and check it out at stylebuilder.telerik.com. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And the big thing I found was that in working with other databases, I'd write a query 
and get, get it bad, get poor performance. And so I'd rewrite the query in a different way and get better performance because I'd get different query plans. And in SQL Server, I find no matter how I write the query, I get the same query plan. Ooh, no, you've just been lucky. Have I been lucky? You you've tell just, me otherwise. You've just, you've just been lucky. <laughs> you've just been lucky. Um, oh, it, it, it all depends. And you've got the wrong person on the phone. You should have Kimberly on the phone. She's the query processing person. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I just I just store the data and return it and make sure it's not corrupt. She's the one that knows more about the query processor. But it depends on what indexes you have. It depends on actually we can talk about this. It depends on what your indexing strategy is, what indexes you have. It depends on your statistics, whether your statistics are up to date. You know, if you've got if you've got out of date stats, then the query processor is not going to be able to do a good job of of picking a query. Um, you know, you might have you might have a query that works perfectly well until you try to select an area of the table that has a massive amount of data skew okay, that the query processor doesn't know about because the stats are out of date, in which case the, the plan that it's chosen might completely suck. So, And I know that I've talked to folks that run into this particular issue where I run this query on my test machine and it performs well. You know, It's got a copy of the real data on it, but then when I run it in production, I don't get the same results at all. Oh, there's, there's a million different things. So there's a survey that I'm doing on uh, on my blog. I do a kind of weekly survey. In fact, if you're not reading my blog, quick plug, you should read my blog. It's very cool. No advertising, <laughs> no, nothing like that, just lots and lots of information. And I post like a madman. So sqlskills.com blog slash poll. There you go. Anyway, I'm doing a survey. This week's survey is what's the most important thing when performance tuning? Okay, so you walk up to a box and it's not performing very well. What do you go for first? And this, is a, this kind of ties into what we're talking about because all these different things can affect how well a particular query actually performs in production. So my 10 choices that I'm wanting people to pick are I.O. subsystem design tuning, including RAID. Number two, server hardware, CPUs, memory. Number three, virtualized versus real server. Number four, database physical layout. Number five, table design. Number six, heaps versus clustered indexes. Number seven, non-clustered index strategy. Number eight, statistics. Number, number nine, application design and code. Number 10, database maintenance. So any, any single one of those, apart from your app design and code, can be utterly different in production than they are in test. Right. So, and, and, so you know, any one of those things can, can affect how production works. And as a developer, unless you're actually testing on something representative of production, you're not going to get the same results, which is why you get exactly what you just said, Richard. Well, and, and an interesting area that we've certainly run into in some of the run-ass conversations and I've run into out in the wild is SAN performance just not measuring up and significantly harming SQL Server performance. Absolutely. So th there's something that I just learned about about a month ago, which is um, disk partition alignment and the problem that happens there. So by default on all operating systems before Windows Server 2008, the, the default partition alignment is 63 disk blocks, which is 31.5K. And most SAN administrators are going to pick a RAID stripe size of 64K, which means that you've got a mis misaligned um, disk. So every so often, you're going to have an I.O. that has to read two stripes be able to get the data back. Interesting. Interesting. Windows 2008 does it does it properly. Okay. It actually stripes it to fit to the SAN block. It, it, it creates, the, um, it creates the, the partitioning offset to be the right one. Now, if you've upgraded a database to, to Windows Server 2008, you're still going to have potentially misaligned um, partition. And there's a great white paper that, um, that came out that explains all that, and um, there's a slide deck and, and so on. And you can get up to 30% performance improvements by changing this. It's insane. And it's That's a like, huge wow. number. It's, yeah, and it's, and it's not very well known. I didn't even know about it, and I'm supposed to be an HA person. Um, if you, uh, the best way to, to find it is if you, if you go to my blog and look on, under performance on the category, there's a, a post, a couple of posts down that says, are your disks properly partitioned and striped and, and the right cluster size in NCFS? It, it links to all the different things there. It's well worth checking. You can get a massive improvement. Of course, that's something else that can be different between... Um, production and, and testing. What about well, virtual server? Would you recommend running SQL Server or not running SQL Server in a virtual machine? So this is something that I'm not an expert on. I'll be upfront. Now, what I've heard from people is that doing things like um, a production SQL Server and things like VMware, uh, in other words, not Hyper-V, doesn't go very well because you're virtualizing the I.O. as well. Right. The I.O. basically has to go through a software layer, which means it sucks. They're okay in test, um, but again, you're not going to be getting the same performance. Now, with Hyper-V, what I've heard is that it's quite different. 
Because in Hyper-V, you can actually assign LUNs and NICs to a given VM, and it it appears as if they are just on a regular machine with that hardware. Absolutely. Hmm. So, And that is the extent of my knowledge about running SQL Server on virtual machines. Well, the the other thing I've looked at is uh, VMs are perfectly harmless when you're not at velocity again, right? Absolutely, yeah. I love virtual machine picking up that old NT4 hardware and just moving it into a VM, the whole thing. So you can let that old gear die and let the and let the virtual machine own it, and you can move it from machine to machine. Now it's not a big deal. Yeah, but that that's that's one interesting thing that that could impact how your your system performs in production. Is if if the dev is is working on a VM and sees decent performance, then it's, there's no guarantee it's going to be the same thing in production. Something we haven't talked about in a while, a long time actually, is uh, you know backing up. SQL data, making sure that you've got redundancy. Um, I guess there's a way to replicate SQL Server so that you can have one waiting in the wings if, um, you know, if if your hard if your SQL Server disks blow up and you're down or the machine fries or power supply goes out or something. What's uh, what what do you recommend? <laughs> there's there's a bunch of different technologies. Okay, I'll just say it depends. As that it depends. Depends. It depends. Okay, so saying what is the best, what is the recommended kind of HA technology, and we're getting into run-as territory again now, it, it, it depends on what your SLAs are, depends on your budgets, depends on what your requirements are in terms of uptime, failover time, it depends on how much transaction log your application's generating. There's a whole bunch of different things. I guess the poor man's method would be to back up to, uh, you know, do a regularly scheduled backup every day to a external hard drive or something that another machine can access. You could just pull up another machine. That's that's the absolute minimum I would I would recommend. And you know, I'm I'm probably one of the most paranoid people on the planet about doing backups of you know I have backups backups of my laptop and all kinds of stuff. I even back up my blog contents onto onto a drive. To, uh, <laughs> something goes wrong with my hoster i don't want to have to go and insert you know, when i've been consulting and you bring the you know uh the cto in or the or the cio in and say well how reliable does this database need to be and if it's just we only had a crash last week they say a hundred percent you know it's inevitable they just throw that number out there and then when you actually start pricing out a clustered infrastructure so the I could just call it the hot failover option. So here's a system that the only way to be that fast to be up instantly if something fails is to have the computer do it itself, and that's a hot failover, and that's this much money roughly, versus a warm failover solution, something where a person has to realize it's failed and switch it for you. That's this much money, and you look at something like log shipping or you know yeah, replication or any of those other alternatives. Yeah, I mean money is is usually one of the main things that comes into play, both in terms of um, what's your actual budget for buying stuff? Right. And then what's what's your budget for space, for power, for HVAC, for people to run it? But then you also got to add in the cost of downtime and the cost of data loss. That's the thing. It's it's what are your requirements, what are your limitations, and then compromising between the two. And everybody has to agree on the compromise. So, but yeah, there's this. I was going to say there's four different ways you can do you can do clustering, you can do database mirroring, you can do log shipping, you can do replication, and they each have different pros and cons, different impacts on what you can do and what happens in the database and the performance and, and so on and so on. But there's, there's no easy way to say, I would just recommend blah. Right. So. Well, there's a reason there's four methods, right? But of the of that list of four, only clustering and mirroring in theory offer that seamless failover, right? Well, clustering has this Achilles heel that there's only one copy of the data unless you have sand replication sitting in there too. Right. So you've got a shared copy of the data. And, and even um, database mirroring, it has an Achilles heel. It's only a single database. So if you're at a time, so if your application ecosystem is more than one database, then you can't do automatic failover. You can't automatically fail over multiple databases. Okay. So, you know. Um, but I think the bigger the, thing here I found is that you need programmers involved to create 100% uptime appearance. Because even when you have a cluster failover, you knock out one server and it switches to the other one. It's some time, and in my experience, it's been a couple of minutes for that yep. machine to get back online. Yep. I mean, it, it, it totally depends. I mean, you, you've got to wait for the uh, worst case. You've got for the you've got to wait for the the SQL Server is alive check, which actually the, the cluster service logs into SQL Server or at least tries to and does a select at that version. 
to make sure the SQL Server doesn't just respond to a ping, but, it, but can actually be doing something interactive. So that could take a minute before that fails. Right. And then you've got to wait for the instance to, to start up on your other cluster node, all the databases to run through um, crash recovery, and then you've got to have your application actually realize that the connection's been dropped and do a graceful reconnect without kind of... I, mean, I remember the first days of Amazon.com where um, I, I tried to buy something and I got an Oracle error message back. Love it. That's a fail. <laughs> fail. Of course, they don't do that now. Now you get, uh, now you go, we're down for downtime, blah, 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 blah. You know, so, but the application designer has to be able to cope with something, a connection dropping out underneath. And of course, knowing that whatever the application was in the middle of is lost. Anytime any kind of failover happens, this is a big misconception. Anytime any kind of failover happens, everything that was happening at that point in the database gets rolled back. Right. So your application either has to have some kind of state that it knows what it was doing, okay, or it has to be able to gracefully cope with everything it was doing suddenly getting dropped on the floor. And that can be kind of hard to do. Yeah, well, so you've already sent your transaction off to the database, and sometime after that, you get back, don't not completion, but connection lost. Yep. You have to presume your transaction has failed, remember yep. what it was, and go try it again. But it may be a couple of minutes before you can try it again. Now, what's even more tricky for developers is um, if you're not using um, if you're not using some kind of system where there's a guaranteed if the transaction commits, then after the failover, the transaction's there. So, for instance, if you're using um, clustering with uh, sign application, say, or you're using database mirroring, synchronous database mirroring, then once the, the transaction is actually committed back to the application, if a failover occurs, the application knows that the transaction is going to be there. Right. And the, uh, the database comes back up again. If you're not using any, the, either of these te- two technologies, you've got no guarantees. So if you're using, for instance, um, transactional replication and you've got network load balancing set up in your mid-tier, then you do a commit on the, um, the main node and there's some latency before the transaction actually gets read and propagated through the distributor down to the subscriber. So if a failover occurs before that transaction gets there, then the application has to be able to cope with the fact that that, app- that, that transaction might not be there which is kind of funky. And a similar problem occurs if you've got, if you're using replication, um, peer-to-peer replication, for instance, as a query scale-out solution with a developer. This is, here's the problem that I came across, where um, customers connecting through the mid-tier, and then there's a network load balancing layer which says which of the back ends it goes to. And so if a customer connects in and goes to, say, node one on the back end, does a transaction and commits, okay, and then reconnects through a website, and gets network load balance to another node, say node number four. How much time has to go past before the network load balancing layer knows that it's safe to redirect that customer to a different node than the one they went to last time? Right. In other, in other words, what's, is there any way to know what that latency is between for transactions to be reflected on different nodes? And that's an incredibly difficult problem to solve. But as an IT pro, I can't solve it. I need the developer's help in that. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's where I think that as much as we want to have this sort of wall between dev and IT, or the people perceive it's there, the, oh, these it's conversations <laughs> about how is our app going to tolerate, this is how failure actually looks, you know, what are we going to do to survive that? Now, how are we going to avoid spitting that error message back to the customer? Yep. That's a very interesting challenge, and, and, it, and, and it works both ways. Because now you throw the there's three parties involved here. There's a guy who's building the software, the guy who needs to operate the software, and the guy who's made the agreement with the customers. You know, the business owner, um, how they expect the software ultimately to behave. Absolutely. So you may, you know, clustering may be your only option because it's the only thing that's reliable enough, and you still have to go third party to an external site. Like, how are we going to solve? And and then a hurricane came through and destroyed the data center. Yeah, and I just I hate the fact that we call it like we're calling. Sometimes we just say this is a run ass topic. It's like you know what, developers need to be involved in this because you won't succeed without them. Yeah, you're right. Sure. They they yep. need to know that these things are important and 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 that ultimately if we don't do them, we we are all going to fail. Well, and we had a really good uh, a lot of good feedback on the show that we did on you know what how to design a database with uh, Adam Mechanic. Oh, uh, Adam Peter yeah, Debata. Any interesting, any interesting comments that we should try and address in the show? Well, I just think you know we we basically came up because we hardly ever talk about SQL Server from a maintenance or an IT point of view. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of, as you said before, um, reluctant sort of involuntary DBAs out there that just they end up being DBAs because nobody else, you know, nobody else knows about it. Somebody who listens to .NET Rocks and picks up these little things might know more about SQL Server than most of the developers in the organization. Yeah, true. Frighteningly. Yeah. yeah, Paul, how would the guy who got recruited now, who's basically told you now the DBA, where should he start? What is the primer? There, There isn't a good one. That's the problem. There yeah, isn't need, a good primer. You need to write the primer, Paul. <laughs> if only I had time. See, Twitter gets in the way. That's my problem. <laughs> I, can't, I can't write a book. I'm too busy twittering and making Lego. No, absolutely. There's, there's, there's no really, really good... Um, primer. I, I have heard anecdotally, I haven't read it, I have heard anecdotally that there's a new database administration book out uh, for 2008, for SQL Server 2008, by a guy called um, Ross Mystery, I believe, that has had some good reviews in terms of being a good pick up and run with it um, if you've never been a DBA before. So you might want to check that out. All Apart right. from that, it's, it's I was going to say, you know, go and read people's blogs and stuff, but if you're an accidental DBA, how do you know what which people to go and follow and, and stuff like that? Um, besides you, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. But no, seriously. I mean, even me. I mean, how do you find me you, if you've got no idea? You know, you're not going to just go and randomly, you know, type in Paul Randall unless you're actually a DBA that, that's been following me and knows me. You know, how are you going to find the right people? Right. I mean, you could start in Books Online, but Books Online doesn't even have a. If you're an accidental DBA, start here. Here's what you need to know. Because you know, there's there's so many different gotchas that can happen with being an accidental DBA, and of course, the number one is um, in terms of recovery models and log backups, and that, that old chestnut. Yeah, and I was just uh, thinking about that. You know, there's yeah. a very fundamental thing that folks need to know if you're just getting started about the different recovery models and, and how we do backups. So do you want to run them down for us? Sure. Um, actually, you know what? There, there is a good place to start. Um, last August, I wrote an article for TechNet Magazine called Effective Database Maintenance, or Essential Database Maintenance, and it's written for the accidental DBA. Okay? So, TechNet Magazine, August 2008, and it's the, it's the feature article on the cover of the magazine. That's a really good place to start. And then there's a whole bunch of other TechNet Magazine articles that I've written with the kind of um, accidental DBA, IT Pro, that doesn't know anything about SQL Server in mind. So the, um, in fact, tomorrow, tomorrow's issue will be the July issue, and there's one about backups and how they work. So talking about um, recovery models and, and backups. So a lot of the times I see people get into problems where the transaction log has filled up. Yeah. And, and so the database stops. If the, if the transaction log is not set to, to be able to grow automatically, or it grows and grows and grows and grows and runs out of space because nobody's monitoring it because they don't know to because they're involuntary DBAs, um, the number one cause, the absolute number one cause of this is going into the full recovery model and then taking a full backup, taking a database backup, okay, which sounds like a really good thing to do. Okay, you're in the full recovery model, everything's being logged, you're not going to lose data. Oh, we should take a database backup, so we've got a point for recovery. As soon as you take that full database backup, you are telling SQL Server, I will now take log backups forevermore so that the log does not grow out of control. However... When you take that first full backup, there is no big flashing warning light that comes on saying you now need to take log backups. So that's how people get into problems. Right. And as a developer, I'm thinking, well, why would I bother backing up the log? I've already backed up the database. That's all I need, right? Right. Absolutely. But it's, it's one of these idiosyncrasies that the SQL Server has that when you first go into the full recovery model, you're not really in the full recovery model. You actually stay in what's called a pseudo-simple recovery model. And in the simple recovery model, Every time a, a thing called a checkpoint occurs, which occurs every every minute or so, let's say roughly, um, the transaction log gets cleared out, so it doesn't have to grow. As soon as you go into full, it doesn't do that anymore once you take that backup. And once you've committed to backing up now, it leaves it in true full. And a lot of folks do switch it to simple because it makes yeah, the problem so go away. They do. Now, the problem is if you switch to simple, then you can't take log backups which means you can't do point-in-time recovery or what's called up-to-the-minute recovery. Right. Uh, the, you know, so you've got, a, you've got a trade-off between what do you want to do in terms of disaster recovery and high, avail- high availability and your ability to do database maintenance and to do things like monitoring the sizes of your log and data files. Now, there's, there's all kinds of different things. That well, and, and in the use cases, comes back to the same old problem of if you're only taking a backup once a day, 
can you afford to lose a day's worth of data? Right, and that's that's the thing that I say every time. You realize that you're going to lose everything that happened since your last full backup. Right. I, but I even get I, I get people doing essentially daft things where they'll go into the full recovery model, and every once a day they'll take a full backup, and then they'll switch to simple and just to clear the log out, and then switch back to full again. <laughs> Why? Don't do that. Either go in full and take log backups, or go in simple and don't. Okay? What, don't one or the other. Yeah. But here's the catch. You know, some, some, some people, imagine you want to use database mirroring. If you want to use database mirroring, you have no choice. You must use the full recovery model. Okay. Which means suddenly you are now taking log backups. But you can just back them up and throw them away if you're not interested. Okay? But I would say that, you know, uh, here's another point is if you're going to implement HA technologies, you can't not take backups. You have to do both. Okay? If you wanted a proper HA strategy, it's backups and some kind of HA technologies. Because if your HA technologies fail and you've lost all your data, then if you don't have backups to restore from, it's your job too. And I've seen that happen, sadly enough. So given that I actually am running in full mode and I'm back at the database once a day and I back up my transaction log periodically, okay. am I able to recover from stuff like my software accidentally renamed every customer John Smith? Um, yes, it depends how you'd want to do it, though. You could restore your database back to the point in time just before it did that. Right. But then, but then you'd have lost all the work that happened afterwards. Yes. Or you could restore your database with a different name and then pull all the contents of that screwed-up table back over without losing all the rest of the things that happen in the database. But the odds are you've got relational and integrity constraints all over the place, and you know what's, what's happening in the database is part of other transactions, so you might have to just bite the bullet and go back in time. But you can do, you can do what's called point-in-time recovery um, to any point in time, as long as you have a log backup that, that covers that point in time. Down to the millisecond kind of thing? You can go down to individual log records, depending on what you want to do. Wow. Now, there's, there's another catch, which is kind of geeky, but this is a geeky show, which is um, if you have a log backup and in the time period covered by that log backup, if you switched the database to the bulk logged recovery model and you did what's called a minimally logged operation, and I'll, I'll define all these terms in a second, you did a minimally logged operation, then in the time period covered by that log backup, you cannot do any kind of stop-at operation. You can't stop the recovery process, the restore process, using that log backup. You can go to before it, or you can go to after it, and any point after it, but not during that log backup. Okay. okay so so what's a catch. minimally logged operation? A minimally logged operation. Um, there are certain operations that do lots and lots of stuff. For instance, rebuilding an index, or doing a bulk load of data, where you can switch to what's called the bulk logged recovery model. And instead of generating transaction log records for everything that happens, all it does is it generates log records for um, parts of the database being allocated, not the actual inserts of the, the data, which means that it, it generates a lot less transaction log. So your transaction log does not grow so much. Okay? Now, your log backup will be exactly the same size almost as if it was done in the full recovery model, because even though it doesn't generate so much transaction log, the log backup has to have all the information necessary to be able to replay that operation. So it picks up those few log records plus all of the actual data pages that change because of that minimally logged operation. Now, because that log backup now has data pages in it, there's no information to say when during that time period those data pages changed. So you can't stop at any point during that time period. Right. So one thing to be aware of is if you're a developer or even if you're a DBA listener to this is careful about doing stuff in the bulk log recovery model. Because you might not be able to do a stop at that you need to be able to do. But you know, hasn't it always been the rule that when you're going to do one of these minimally logged operations or or have to flip the bulk log or anything like that, the next thing you should do after that is take a full backup. Um, not no, not not a full backup. the The rule is if you're going to go into the, the bulk log recovery model, first off, make sure that there's nothing happening during that time that you can't regenerate in some other way. Right. No user transactions. Just before going into bulk logged, take a log backup. Switch over to bulk log, do your operation, switch back to full, immediately take another log backup. Don't need to take a full backup, just a log backup. Right. Okay. That, that gives you the unbroken um, chain of log backups that you're going to need to restore past that point in time. 
And again, this only matters if you want to be able to recover point in time. If you're okay with losing the work of the re- of the day and going sure. back to the last full backup, then fine. Absolutely. It's just a question of, you know, often we make these bets and get away with it. And it becomes practice without realizing the real consequences of what we did. Right. And, and until you actually have a disaster and find that you can't do what you want to do. So this brings me to a great point. I always say, don't ever, ever plan a backup strategy. Plan a restore strategy. Ah, very nice. Okay. okay. And then figure out what backups you need to be able to take to do the restores you want to be able to do if a disaster occurs. Well, I think it's incredibly valuable to let your customer know, whether that's your boss or anybody else, how long a restore actually is going to take. That's how oh, yeah. I've always gotten more money for backup systems. Was say, yep. well, by the way, if this dies, the fastest I can get you back up, given I had everything I need, is a day. You prepared to be down for the day? No. Well, then we should talk because I'm just telling you what what you're currently up against. And I, it's unfortunate that many companies only find out how quickly they recover when they finish recovering. Apparently, yeah. this takes a week. Yep. And there's a few things you can you can do to to basically speed up how long your restores are going to take. So the um, one of the fastest restores that I know of. There's uh, a company called bwin.com that, that we've worked with in the past. They're an online gambling firm and they, they, um, they're one of the, the major tap customers for Microsoft and their DBA, a guy called Thomas, does presentations at PASS and other conferences about some of their systems. And we were over in their data center in Vienna and he was telling us that they can restore two terabytes of data in 36 minutes. Holy cow. Yeah. That's like breaking yeah. the speed of light. Yeah, they're using SQL Server 2008. Um, their their backup device is 12 separate spindles. Okay, so they're backing up to 12 separate files, one on each of these spindles, 15,000K, uh, sorry, 15,000 RPM drives in a, um, a backup stripe set, and they're using 2008 backup compression. So two, they can do um, two terabytes in 36 minutes, which is astonishing. So the things that you can do to speed up your restores are, one, use compression, okay, because that speeds up your backup and speeds up your restore at the expense of a little bit of CPU. Um, throw hardware at it. This is one where you can just throw hardware at the problem. Okay, the, the more spindles you can have and the faster they are, then the faster the reads and writes are going to be of those backups. Um, another thing you can do is you can use a thing called instant initialization on SQL Server. And what this is, is the first phase of a restore is always, if the file doesn't exist, create the file. Now, by default, SQL Server is going to go and zero out the contents of that file. Um, Reason being is that NTFS doesn't know what the, the trusted high watermark of that file is. Okay, so the, the general way of doing that is write sequentially to the file, and every time you do a write higher up in the file, the NTFS high watermark moves up, and NTFS knows to trust that, that portion of the file. The zeroing out of that file is very, very slow, especially if you've got terabyte-sized files that you're having to zero out. Yeah. So um, what you can do is you can grant a permission to the SQL Server service accounts called Perform Volume Maintenance Tasks, or SE Manage Volume Data. And what that allows um, SQL Server to do is not have to do the zeroing when it creates the file. What it can do is it can call, it can call an NTFS um, API called Set File Valid Data. And what that does is just say, here's the high watermark in the file. Trust me, don't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Paul, we're just about out of time. Is there is there any last? Well, let me ask you this. Um, raid. Raid has been a the biggest pain in my ass. Like I can't explain how how frustrating raid is. Always use a cushion. Yeah, I know they have a cream <laughs> for that. On the raid themselves. <laughs> We've been so serious. We have got to say something rude. Jeez, it would be... <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> they have a cream for that. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously. I mean. It, I, I can't wait for solid-state disks to really take over because, man, we wouldn't need RAID, you know? But, let, okay, now we're Why? we're here. Why? Why would we not need RAID? Well, let's, that's another show, really. That's um, but maybe you could tell me when we're done. But, what uh, you know, with, with regular old disks and SCSI and, you know, SATA and all of this stuff, what RAID uh, configurations work best for what types of databases? That's, that's pretty simple. So if you've got a, a read-mostly database, then you could stick it on RAID 5. If you have a read-write or write-mostly, then RAID 10 or RAID 1, RAID 1 or RAID 10. You pay a performance penalty on writes with RAID 5. In exchange for disk efficiency. 
in exchange for disk efficiency. And your SAN administrator is going to try and give you RAID 5 because it uses the least amount of his disks to give you the capacity that you want, whereas RAID 10 uses the most amount of disks. RAID 1 plus 0. RAID 1 plus 0, yeah. RAID right. a couple of mirror sets and strive across them. Yeah, so then it's, you know, the whole thing with RAID 10 is it's two drives for one, and in RAID 5 it's it's number of drives plus one Yep. to, to get your capacities. So going to SSDs, all that does is make the drives faster. You're still going to have to do RAID for redundancy. Yeah, okay. Well, but you don't have to do striping. You can, and striping is really where you get screwed up because if you got a mirror and one of them blows up, it's really easy to recover from that. If one, you know, let's say, you know, let's say you, you, one of your discs in a stripe blows up and then the software can't put it back together again because it's brain dead and you have a problem. Now yeah, you've got all these. The striping is yeah. more for performance rather than. No, I know that, but I know that, but if it can't rebuild a stripe, you're screwed is what I'm saying. You, the same problem with, with SSDs. Well, all you wouldn't SSDs, stripe SSDs, is why? what I'm saying. Why not? All SSDs do is reduce the, the, the latency and seek time to a, a known number. All no, time. but all, also what, S, what striping does is it makes them dependent on each other. So you're dependent now on the, on the RAID system's ability to rebuild that array, and if it can't do it, for whatever reason, you know, your drives, your drivers, your, you know, maybe it's running some weird Linux embedded thing, you know should i make a joke or should i not say anything <laughs> uh no yeah it's all right you know okay. you get what you pay for um yeah but but that's why you have backups as well you get you're using striping for performance and you've got to use backups as well for for added redundancy you know you do right. rate 10 because it gives you performance and it gives you redundancy and you have to have backups as well. You can't just trust the I/O subs. I would think I would think using SSDs with spans would be safer because you don't real. Do you really need the performance? Depends. That a RAID strat, you know, with SSDs. So I mean, the the eventually people will push the limits of SSDs as well. I mean, this same company that I was working with, Bwin, um, they do four hundred thousand SQL statements per second. That's a lot of SQL statements. That's a lot of SQL statements. And I don't know of a workload that's, that's higher than that that's been publicized. And they need the performance. So they need to be able to stripe as well. So, but that's a whole other show. Definitely a whole other yeah. show. But it's interesting to hear you say, you know, if you can afford the disk space, RAID 10 is always the right way. Oh, yeah. And if you can't, then RAID 5. But RAID well, 5, you always pay a penalty for writing. Right. Right. No pun intended. Nice. And there's a, um, for SQL Server, there's a white paper called Physical Database Storage Design that talks about um, the different RAID configurations and, and database layouts and, and how to go about doing that and what the choices are for, for various different workloads. So that's and, worth checking out as well. And I presume you're in the camp that says the system drive, the database drive, and the uh, log drive are separate drives. Yes, but again, it depends. I mean, if you've, if you've got some really high-performing SAN, does it really make a difference? You know, it right. depends on the I.O. subsystem underneath. In, in general, and generalizations are a dangerous thing to make, in general, the answer is yes. They should be separated based on the degree of workload in terms of, of reads and writes. Well, but, I don't believe in the fact that SANs actually make everything magically better. If a, as a SAN administrator that's assigning everything to the same set of spindles, you're screwed. Right. So that's, that's why I said it totally depends. It depends on, on yeah. But in general, in general, yes, you should be aware of what's happening for each of your different files and the I.O. loads on them. And monitoring your disk queue lengths. That's the thing. If your disk queue lengths are going up, then you've got to break it out. Oh, boy. We're talking about Perfmon on .NET Rocks. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm a big believer in Perfmon, and it's been a good tool for me, depending on what hat I had on. If you're, But you're in the performance tuning business. You need to know how Perfmon's going to help you. And disk queue lengths is your, is your tip. Your That's drives right. are in trouble. This is something that you could, I could argue a developer should be looking at this to see what effect the queries that they're running on the database is having and what IOs it's pushing out to the IO subsystem. Right. See if it's going to overload the IO subsystem that's in production. There's no reason a developer shouldn't be looking at this stuff, too. So that, and you're starting to talk about hybrid developers, performance tuners, DBAs. And it's all the same problem. But this queue length, you know, the correct number is zero. Well, very low. Yeah. yeah. And as the number rises above one, you should be concerned. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Because really, you're now talking. There's an I/O operation waiting to be done, waiting for the system to do it. 
Right. And that's always bad. That's time going off the clock. Yeah. And if and SQL Server is another interesting thing to look out for. If you see page I.O. latch weights in your error log, that usually says your I.O. subsystem is underpowered. You're hammered. You're hammer you're hammering it. So All right. Well, uh what can I say? It's been an interesting show for me to listen to. But, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, I learned a lot and I always do when we talk about this stuff. And uh, I hope uh, I hope the uh, developers who are out there who are jonesing for some more SQL Server content really appreciate it. If you like what you hear or you got any comments, send them to us at .NETrocks at Franklin's.net. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Thank that beautiful wife of yours for all the work she does with you. And, and certainly shall. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.